Hello and welcome to another VW podcast. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. Aaron, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Pretty well? Yeah. I'm doing great. Just came back from vacation. Yeah? Yeah. Where were you? Vegas. Nice. Vegas, baby. Vegas. Very nice. Uh, we'll do that in our separate uh, hotel reviews. I know you like the points guy. Yeah. We should do that. I got yeah. a lot of great info on downtown. Yeah. They are doing a lot of construction downtown Vegas. So you're downtown? Yeah. Hmm. All right. Let's get into this, what people really want to listen to. Today's podcast is about the book Venture Deals. We are covering Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. Uh, we have done five, six episodes so far, covering five chapters, right? Because we yes. split chapter four into two. And we're going to do that again today with chapter six. Now, first of all, I apologize. We're a week late. One of the hazards of this business is that we had a big transaction last week that just we got uh, consumed by. So we weren't able to cut this podcast last week. But we're going to do first part of chapter six right now. And then hopefully the second part of chapter six in the next couple of days. Sound good to you, Aaron? Perfect. All right, man. So what we're talking about today are other terms of the term sheet. And this really gets into the weeds into the rest of the pages other than the front page of the term sheet. You know, I think most people just look at the front page, especially yeah. the founders, because it has valuation and how much money you're getting. Well, I think I think they'll look at the whole term sheet if they, you know, if, they, if they're having trouble falling asleep. Maybe. Right. right. There's lots and lots of pages on uh, other rights. But these things are important. You know, this is like the Pareto principle. The Pareto principle is the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of your revenues come from 20% of your customers. 80% of the material terms of a term sheet come from 20% of the term sheet, which is page one. So the material terms cover the most important stuff or the, the stuff that is you know comes up most often or you discuss most often. However, the other 20% of the... Uh, of the term sheet, no wait, I'm getting this back. Of the material, yeah, twenty percent of the material covers eighty percent of the term sheet, and I think that's really appropriate here. Don't you agree, Aaron? I agree. A lot of this stuff just doesn't come up all that often, but it's important anyway. Yeah, and I think we've seen this in this book where they had the economic terms in one section, they had the control terms in another section, and now there's just the miscellaneous, the other terms. So there's a lot going on here. This chapter, more than any, you really do need to read it carefully because we just don't have time to cover everything in great detail. But I do want to make points on each of these. So let's start with dividends. How important are dividends for a startup? How often? How many times are investors going to receive dividends from a startup? Not very often. I mean, it, it's not uncommon to see a declared, you know, to see dividend, you know, that the investor is entitled to a dividend, but, you know, more often than not, that dividend is just going to be accruing and it's never going to be paid out until liquidation. So dividends are a term that investors ask for, but you never see them actually paid. Like Aaron said, they might be declared or they might have to be declared or at least accrue through the term sheet, but they just don't pay. Startups don't pay them because if a startup has additional cash, it needs to use that to build and to grow. That said, it's pretty typical for investors to ask for a dividend. Think about an interest on their investment. Now, it's not actual interest because it's not a debt obligation, but they're basically earning interest on it. A lot of investors call it a coupon. Yep. Hey, what's the coupon, which is a, a promissory note term? What's the coupon? And usually it's between 6 and 8%, right, Aaron, what we typically see? Yeah. And so it's 6 to 8% compounding or non-compounding. Now, this is very critical. So let's talk about this. If the investors invest a million dollars and they've got an 8% dividend, that means the next year, their investment will be up to a million eighty thousand, and that becomes important for the liquidation preference. 
All right. So it's a million eighty thousand because it's an eight percent dividend. Now, if it's a compounding dividend, when you get to year two, it's an additional eighty thousand for the eight million. For, excuse me for the million, and then an additional sixty four hundred on the eighty thousand dollars because it's compounding. So the interest earns interest. So the eight the eight percent dividend is then calculated based on the. 1,080,000. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So that's your compounding. You want to always ask for non-compounding. And everyone is going to give that to you unless your investor is not a ordinary venture investor and they come from more of a debt finance background, in which case they might insist on it. You know, I don't ever want to say there's any single term that can kill that that would always be a no. I think everything has to be considered in light of the circumstances, but Almost universally, you see non-compounding dividends. Uh, the VCs don't necessarily care about them all that much. It's really their investors, a lot of their institutional investors or their LPs or high net worths who are used to seeing these things. And I think that's where the requests come from. But uh, the dividends, if you made the mistake of giving up compounding dividends and now you're four or five years into having some preferred equity on your balance, on your balance sheet, that could get to be the interest accrual could get to be very, very expensive. All right. So that's dividends. You got any other thoughts on dividends, Aaron? No. Ask for non compounding. Right. Get through there. Ask for 6%. You'll probably yeah. be at 8%. Okay. The next part is redemption rights. Aaron, you want to cover this one? Yeah. Redemption rights, you know, typically structured in a way where, you know, after X number of years, um, the investor can. Uh, request to be essentially paid back their investment. It's it, it's not something that we see a whole lot of. Um, you know, we've seen it occasionally, uh, but I just think that for most of the companies that we're working with, they're such early stage companies that redemption rights just don't come into play. So redemption right, like Aaron mentioned, is the right for the investor after a certain period of time, and the longer that period of time, the better for the company to ask for their money back. You know, VCs are not in the business of funding lifestyle businesses that are just going to exist into perpetuity. A VC wants to get in and out in hopefully three to five years, realistically five to eight years. But what a VC might say is, hey, after year five or six, if this isn't going the way we want it to go, we can force you to buy us out because we can, we need money back so we can go get, give returns to our investors. And that's known as a redemption right. Now, a very, very aggressive term sheet will have a redemption right starting in year three or four. Typically, you see them in year five, or six. And when you do have redemption rights, let's just say you got a million dollar investment with a redemption right. It's not like you have the company has to pay back the million dollars immediately. Typically, typically the redemption right is uh, the payment payment period is three, two to three years, and it's on a promissory note with some small interest right. Something that I thought was interesting that I had never seen was this whole uh, material adverse change redemption. Yeah, I thought that was really good too. And that's why this book is so valuable. But go right. ahead, Aaron. No, it was just you know, it, it it basically says if there's a material adverse change, you know, to the company, say legislation is passed that, you know, effectively kills the business or, you know, something happens that makes the company no longer viable or just materially adversely changes the nature of the business, then that triggers the redemption right. Yeah, that's known as a MAC clause, material adverse change, MAC. And you see those things show up in other financing documents or other transactional documents. I agree with Aaron. I have not seen that in a redemption right ask, but man, that would be aggressive. First of all, who? how do you define materially adverse, you know, material adverse change? Because I'm pretty sure the investors council will define that a lot more broadly than the company council will would. But secondly, 
Man, that is aggressive. That the investors just get to come in and take over the company. Well, and talk about hitting somebody while they're down. You right. Know, and here, the company just suffers a material adverse change, and now, oh, you have to come up with money to buy out your investor. And you really want to be aligned with your investors, right? So if your investors are in a position to where they can say, hey, look, you're cool to run the company now, but if something major happens, we don't think you're good enough to run the company anymore. That's a problem. So it's not so much this actual term, but what it, this term is indicating. The aggressiveness of the investors, the the lack of faith in the founders, the management team to continue to run the business after a material adverse change. And then how do you actually enforce that? So let's just say there was a material adverse change and they send the company a letter that said, there's a material adverse change. So now you're out and I'm putting this guy in as CEO and what happens to the founder's equity? There's a lot of crazy uh, scenarios that 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 would bring up. So redemption rights, again, you need to be discussing these with your attorney. Five or six years, okay, preferably none. And we don't see them that often. Maybe, I don't know, less than 20%, 10% of the deals we do. Yeah. Yeah, so so we just don't see them all that often. And that's at the A level. The C level, you never see. No. Rarely, rarely, rarely. Maybe one in 20, one in 50, something like that. But at the A level, man, 10, 15%, I would say. Uh, But that's important to have have a good startup attorney on your side to walk you through those. All right, next one was a quick, Aaron, was a condition pre- conditions precedent to financing. You know, it's funny. If you would have asked me about this six months ago, I would have said, yeah, this doesn't really matter. Who cares? Uh, yeah, okay, we have to do X, Y, Z before we close the deal. Uh, you and I had a deal recently that uh, we got hurt by this conditions to closing just because there, were, there was a list of items that had to be complete that were tucked into the conditions precedent that, you know, we thought, okay, yeah, these are things that we're going to get signed. And generally the way we operate is we're going to close the, the, the deal. And then we'll go round up all the signatures, chase those down post closing. Um, but the investors council had these tucked into conditions precedent. And so we had to go chase down hundreds of signatures before we could get the deal closed. So conditions precedent, you know, precedent means before. So these are things that have to happen before. Yeah, that that deal really threw us for a loop because these things are in there, but in the venture world, counsel's usually says, okay, well, obviously you're doing this part and this is a little difficult to get done right now. Let's not st- stem the flow of the funding. Let's get that wrapped up and then we'll do some things post-close. This particular counsel, uh, she was very insistent that these things had to be done prior to closing the funding. And so we had to go out and do that. Now, in retrospect, I think, Aaron, we either pushed back there. So just to give you guys an example, one of the conditions said you must have 100% of the shareholders sign this document, a certain document prior to executing the new financing round. And this particular early stage company had you know 70 some odd investors on it. And then some of those investors were operating through through funds or trusts, or we had to get spousal consents, and we had multiple documents that they had to sign. But also option holders had to option sign. holders had to go and sign, so which is very rare. Employees, you know, 40, 50, 60 employees right. for this company. So in, in in hindsight, or next time we see this, I think we're going to go in and we're going to say no to the option holders, and sure, we'll get 80% of the investors. Right. And we'll be willing to go up to 90, 95%. I think one of the investors was traveling in Timbuktu or something, and we had to chase this person down. Right. And they had to get to a cell phone spot so they could sign it by a DocuSign. But hey, look, that's what the term sheet said, right? So you got to pay really, really close attention to the term sheet. Fortunately, on our side, we were able to get it done. The good thing is for our side is now we have a, a full, complete book of every single shareholder, every single option yeah. holder having signed things. But have we been more diligent about that? It's just something that hadn't come up a whole lot in the past. 
might be able to save ourselves a little bit of a headache. This is why these, you know, other terms really, really matter. So you got to be willing to get into the real weeds on this. But here's the other thing about conditions precedent to financing is conditions precedent to financing are sometimes an eject button for a VC. Typically, once a term sheet is signed, unless there's some real nasty stuff that comes up during due diligence, most of these things close. High percentage, 70, 80%, I feel like, of deals that we have term sheets, signed term sheets. Not not just a term sheet, a signed term sheet. Yeah. Um, these things usually sign. The term sheets are not binding, but these things usually sign. When they do blow up, a lot of times the VC, just so the VC doesn't look bad, they'll use conditions precedent to finance. They'll say, hey, look, we said you had to do X, Y, Z. You had to have this many shares in your option pool. You had to get these non-competes signed. You had to track, you had to buy back these shares from these former founders who have left the company. Things that might not have seemed like a big deal or seemed attainable or that they wouldn't hold up the deal are all of a sudden holding up the deal. Now, you never know really why a VC is not going to fund. Maybe someone soured on the deal. Maybe they had some redemption calls of their own from the LPs and they're short on cash. Maybe another deal came in. But the fewer conditions precedent to financing, the better. Or if you are going to have, from the company side, if you are going to have conditions precedent, then make them as low a hurdles as possible, right? Yep. All right, moving on to the next one. Information rights. Information rights. Go ahead, Aaron. I, I mean, just information rights entitle um, the investors or certain groups of investors to receive monthly, quarterly, annual financial statements. Um, you know, usually we see this done by most companies um, that we work with as a monthly or weekly email update to investors, to everybody, really. Um, I, I thought the point here was was really good The uh, from the entrepreneur's perspective, which is you should absolutely be giving information to all of your investors. There's no reason to try to run anything but a transparent organization. I agree. That was awesome. We love hearing it. You know, we tell our clients that all the time. Boy, it makes life so much easier when the investors know everything. Know absolutely everything. This does not mean you show them your patent schemes right. or schematics, right? Doesn't mean you tell them what your marketing launch plans are. Tell them your trade secrets. No. Right. But financial information, organizational issues, the good and the bad. Yeah. You share everything with them. I mean, we have a client that in his monthly update sends out the good, the bad, the ugly, and then asks for help on what he needs help on. Here's what I would encourage you to do if you're listening to this and you're a founder. One, check out our blog. We wrote a blog on this called Keep Your Investors Updated. And in that blog, we have a fantastic template of what to use to send out uh, investor updates. There are now third-party companies that are creating software to help you with this. There's one out of Austin. I can't remember their name. But you just go plug in a little information and it sends a real clean, sharp-looking newsletter out to your uh, out to your investors. I would invest your. I would keep your investors updated at least monthly with major information. And again, this is probably going to take the founder thirty minutes to an hour to do, one hour a month. That time is just as valuable for the founder to collect the founder's thoughts, see where the company is, and put those on paper as it is for the investors. And then every Friday, I would send your investors a quick note, or maybe other every other Friday, just you know, in between we send the updates, just to let them know of any wins that you had. Hey, just want to check in with you guys. Happy Friday check out what we did. We just hired this person. We just got this sale. We just launched this release of the product. The more you touch your... I never have an investor come and tell me, oh man, you you over-communicate. Now we do have... You do want to be careful about burying things in attachments. Sometimes people do that. They'll send out like a big long pitch deck. Investors are reading these things on their phone or their tablets. They don't have a ton of time for that. 
put it into an email, make it easy for them to read. But the more you communicate, the better. It has to be a minimum of once per month. And listen, I know it's your company and you know you you don't want to show all of your warts and your faults and what's going wrong, but the earlier you communicate these issues to investors, if you're having if if you know you're having just a really bad quarter and things aren't going as well as you thought they would be going, yeah, you don't want to tell your investors that I get it, but if you let them know, they know it's coming. They, you know, to the extent they can help you, they will. They, you know, they have their money invested in this company. Just because you're having a bad quarter or a bad, you know, half a year doesn't mean they're going to pull their money or try to run away. They want to help you. I totally agree. And so this is more about just being transparent with your investors. As far as what they're actually going to request, it's not that bad. It's usually annual financials, quarterly financials, maybe monthly. I would push back on monthly. Might be especially an earlier stage company might be a little cumbersome to be running monthly reports. Quarterly should be fine. Make sure you're not agreeing to give anyone anything gap. You're just too early. It's too expensive. Okay, what's the language we use there, Aaron? I think the language we we typically try to insert rather than using generally accepted accounting principles is reasonable accounting standards applied on a consistent basis. Reasonable accounting standards. Uh, your attorney will help you with that. Just don't, do not, maybe once you get to series B, you know, some of our A clients will have to do an audit each year. Um, that's pretty, that, that's not uncommon, but earlier stage, do not agree to give everything in gap and no more than quarterly statements, quarterly financial statements. All right, so that's information rights. Uh, the next part is registration rights. Registration rights, the entrepreneur says, don't focus don't focus much energy on registration rights. This is more about upside. The world is good if you're going public, and that's exactly what they're for. Registration rights give the investors the right to demand that you go public at some point in time. And this doesn't mean all of your shares, but to offer a portion of your shares for sale in public on a public exchange. Generally, this comes in. Uh, generally, they can only request this at a certain level. So the company valuation is at a certain level for them to be able to raise money on public exchange. You know, if you don't want to go public for a long time, just push up that threshold as high as possible. We typically see what Aaron fifty million. I mean, it all depends on what stage the company's at. Um, you know, obviously, if it's a if it's a smaller Series A round, um, the registration rights will typically be a little bit lower than if it's a larger series a or if it's a series b deal so what we're talking about is that if you read the language on pages 88 and 89 it says the investors can demand it so long as the anticipated offering price of the public they say is not less than five million that's a pretty low threshold because if you have a company that's worth you know 50 million dollars and the investors own 20 percent of that then they've got 10 million in funding then they could demand that you take some of their um, that you guys go that you go public so that they can uh, they can exchange some things or they can you know get they can sell some of their shares. Here's the issue with going public. It's just very expensive. I mean you're talking about hundreds of thousand dollars in legal fees plus super time consuming. So I'm surprised they use the example of five million because I feel like we usually say twenty five or fifty as the uh, as the baseline there. I mean I, I want to clarify because filing a registration statement doesn't necessarily mean you're public. It just means you're re now required to to submit to um, the SEC, you know, certain disclosure statements. Um, you know, you can still be a privately held company, but have 
but still have to file certain registration and and disclosure statements with the SEC. That's correct. So the the language in here is very we rarely mark it up or see it get marked up other than the percentage of investors that can call for it and the minimum thresholds. If you don't ever want to go public or you want to maintain, you know, full control of your company for as long as possible or as much control as long as possible, just drive up those numbers, you know, have a, a lower minimum threshold. All right. The next section, right of first refusal. First of all, let's talk about the terminology here, okay? Because they're using right of first refusal as what a lot of people know as participation right. Um, or other people call it right of first offer. The, the way that we typically see it in Texas is people talk about right of first offer uh, when the company is offering new securities and the previous investors, the current investors, want the ability to participate. But they're calling this right of first refusal. So let me just make sure I'm being very clear here. When a company has a set of investors, those investors want the opportunity to participate in future rounds so they can keep their pro rata ownership. Let's just make it simple. You've got one investor for 10% of the company. If you go and you go raise $10 million, that investor may want to buy 1 million of that 10 million so that that investor still owns 10% of the company. Because if that investor owns 10% of the company and then you go raise money, that investor is going to be diluted. So that investor wants its right to maintain its pro rata ownership. Now here, a lot of times we call that right of first offer because if the company is making an offer for new securities, then the investors have a right to participate in that offer. This book is calling them right of first refusal. And oftentimes right of first refusal is uh, is used for situations where an existing shareholder is selling shares. So not new shares being issued by that company, but an existing shareholder selling new shares and the investors having the right to buy those shares. So just be very clear in your term sheet as to what you're talking about. We'll just refer to them as pro rata rights. I think that's the simplest. Yeah, I've, I've heard pro rata rights. I've heard right of first offer. I've heard preemptive rights. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of those. Participation rights. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just the right of the investors to maintain their pro rata ownership by acquiring securities that are being offered by the company. Now, in general, I don't have any problem with pro rata rights, but you do want to set a minimum threshold for that because you don't want to offer everyone pro rata rights because it, it gets cumbersome from a governance perspective. If you've got early on, you had a bunch of guys buy $5,000 or $10,000 you know, blocks of, of stock, and now you've got a couple institutionals that you know, larger funds at 500 grand, a million bucks each, and you're doing a new round, you don't have to reach out to the $5,000 guys to see if they want to participate in this round. So if you are going to offer a pro rata right, then I would probably set what's known as a major investor threshold and say, okay, we're only going to offer this to people who invest at least this much. They mentioned at the bottom of page 91, a super pro rata right. Have you ever seen that? I we haven't. actually just did one. Did you? Yeah. So another client that you're not working on, these guys are leading around. So they're pretty material. They're putting half the money in around. And they family office, they've got a lot of money behind them. And they said, look, they're investing in about they're buying 14% of the company right now. They want the right to buy up to 25% of every future round. So I don't have a problem with it. This is what we did though. We gave it we gave them three days on it. Because if we get deep into negotiations with another venture fund and they say, okay, we want to invest $10 million. And now we know we might have to offer 2.5 million to this family office. 
I don't want that other venture fund sitting around. So a three-day right of first offer, a three-day pro rider right for 25%, I don't have a really big problem with it. Our worst case scenario, I explain this to the client. Our worst case scenario is big venture fund comes in and says, I want to mess $10 million. These guys come in and say, I want my 25% right. And the venture fund says, nope, I want the full 10 million. Then we're bumping up the round, right? We're increasing the round and it might be taking out a little bit more than we wanted to and, and giving up more dilution, but that's the worst case scenario. So yeah, this is the first time that I ever seen it. We just closed it uh, last week, actually. All right, so that's right of first refusal, also known as pro rata rights or right of first offer, but it deals with the investor's ability to participate pro rata in future rounds. The last thing we want to talk about is voting rights. That's where we're going to stop today. We'll cover the rest in part two. Aaron, you want to talk about voting rights for a sec? Yeah. Um, this this voting rights clause is it's just a friendly reminder. It is, hey, except for certain instances where the preferred has the right to vote on something that the common doesn't, preferred and common vote together. Voting rights can tie in sometimes with the board elections. We talked about that um, a couple podcasts ago. But when when the preferred is going to elect board members and they, all the preferred wants to vote together to elect their board, a lot of times you'll see that language buried right. in the voting rights. I mean, heck, there's a whole voting rights agreement. Yeah. Now, you can do other things inside of a voting rights agreement. You know, um, If you have two founders who are on a board, what those guys might want to do is say, we agree to always vote all of our common in favor of each other. Unless one of us is removed for cause. So that helps to make sure that there's continuity there of the founders. Um, you could have agreements in between the preferred shareholders among each other. You might have the uh, drag usually gets put in there, right, yes. Aaron? Yep. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's always important to note that the preferred is voting on a as converted to common basis. So if you have multiple uh, classes of preferred and um, perhaps one has, um, gotten some anti-dilution protection that's actually come into play, then they will be converting into a larger number of common shares than they would uh, in just a simple one-to-one. Yeah. So that conversion procedure, I don't know if they'll discuss it later in the book, but almost always it's one-to-one. There's sometimes that it's not. And usually it's in an anti-dilution type situation, which I know we already covered. But you have to have it in the in the document somewhere that says these guys will vote on a one to one basis, and this is exactly where it goes. All right, so that's the first half of chapter six. Uh, within the next couple of days, maybe by the time you're listening to this, you'll already see chapter six, part two. That's coming up soon, so we'll cl- wrap this one up. As always, our show notes, which includes references, defined terms, related content, is on VelaWoodLaw.com/slash/blog/slash/podcast/slash/office-hours. Follow up with us on Twitter. Please follow us on Twitter at Vela Wood Law and Instagram at Vela Wood. Or questions and comments, email us podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. You know what? We have not had a question or comment in some time. So the first person to email us a question or comment, podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com, will get a t shirt. Am I eligible for no, that? The no. first non worker, the first person who is not currently on this podcast. Hey, mom, mom, <laughs> we'll make one. sure you email. So, and we'll, we'll let you know if you're the first. We appreciate it. Finally, reminder to uh, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Thank you. Five stars.
The Vailawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at